uh, going to be talking about today. And then let's turn to the Lord in prayer, asking for his help. Uh, our, our scripture passage for today comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. Uh, there, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Heavenly Father, as we approach this difficult text, we ask that you would be with us, that you would guide us and help us understand what you're trying to communicate through your word to us today. Help us understand in the context of everything that Jesus was telling us, everything that Matthew was trying to present to us about Jesus. Help us understand your message. Help us encounter the risen Christ today in this time through your word. For we know that Jesus Christ himself is truly the word who has become flesh. So we ask that you would open our hearts, open our minds, open our ears. Give us the humility to hear from you. I ask that you would guide me, keep me from adding to your word, and keep me from subtracting from your word. Help me be clear, and help me more than anything not fall back on preaching morality, as easy as that might be, not to tell people to just pull themselves up by the bootstraps and be better, but to truly proclaim the gospel message that Jesus Christ has accomplished our salvation and that Christ through his Holy Spirit will work all of these things for your glory. Pray for your gospel to be heard and understood. We pray this all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, we saw in, in the video the comparison that happens between Jesus and Moses, and that's really important for us to understand when we approach the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, this is the longest section of teaching that Jesus delivers in the book. It, it comprises three whole chapters, 5, 6, and 7. Um, so I feel like we're needing to slow down so often when we read Scripture. A lot of times when we're reading through the Bible, we're just reading so quickly, and we fail to get the importance of things. Uh, and so I, I really would encourage you guys as you're reading the Bible to slow down, to ask questions, to let it uh, really soak into your, uh, into your minds and hearts. It would be easy to look at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount where it says that Jesus went up onto a mountain and just think this is just filler. This is just an introduction, but it's not really important itself. But as we saw in that video, the thing that Matthew is highlighting and the thing that Jesus is highlighting in what he's doing is 
of major importance. The people of Jesus' day who knew the Old Testament would have immediately recognized that he was making a statement when he went up on a mountain to teach. He is claiming to be like Moses, to deliver God's law from a mountain. Think of how obvious it would be for all of us if someone came out onto this stage with a beard and a top hat and started their speech four score and seven years ago. We would understand that a reference was being made. Well, to Jesus' hearers, going up onto a mountain to proclaim teaching and law was as obvious as that would have been. And we can miss that if we're just reading over it quickly. But after Jesus goes up onto this mountain, there's something that he does differently than what Moses did in the Old Testament when he delivered the law from God. When Moses delivered God's law, he gave commandments of how the people were supposed to live. And then after the commandments, he said, if you do this, you're going to be blessed. If you don't do this, you're going to be cursed. This is what God requires of you. And so what Jesus ends up doing is reversing that order. When Jesus goes up, he doesn't first start with, here's how you guys ought to live your life. He doesn't even do what Moses does and promise, if you do this, then you'll be blessed first. What Jesus does is come out and pronounces blessings on the people. He doesn't promise. That's very deliberate in what I'm saying. He doesn't promise blessings. He pronounces blessings. And uh, so Jesus also, instead of doing what we might ordinarily expect, and this was brought out in the video, he doesn't hand out the blessings to the rich and the powerful and the good-looking. Uh, what Jesus does is he hands out his blessings to the poor, his blessings to the powerless, his blessings to those who are actually lacking personal righteousness themselves. He gives to those who are hungry for righteousness, yet don't have it, uh, the promises of the kingdom. And uh, again, just to highlight what I was making the point of before, when he says these blessings, he doesn't say, I hope that you're going to be blessed. He also doesn't say, may you be blessed. He says, blessed are fill in the blank. He is assuming God's authority. He's assuming that he as the teacher, he as uh, th this person Jesus, that he has the actual authority to hand out the blessings that God has promised in the Old Testament. Um, and he also uh, is saying that those groups of people who have always been on the fringes for all of history, the marginalized, are now moving from being marginalized to being blessed. 
He says they're blessed because he says they're blessed. So Jesus just pronounces this blessing and changes their status. Um, that's something that we can't lose focus on as we're moving through this whole sermon, and it's especially something that we need to recognize in this passage. Our passage today began with, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is actually one of the oldest laws that's recorded in history. Uh, it was not actually originally even from the Bible. Uh, it appears in the Code of Hammurabi and was likely even around before that was written. The Code of Hammurabi, just for reference, was written about 450 years before Moses was even born. It's something that the Bible is picking up and incorporating into the law and teaching because it's something that is good in the culture. There's a lot of other things in the cultural laws, especially in the Code of Hammurabi, that the Bible completely rejects and makes different sort of laws. But this principle of an eye for an eye, which is called the law of retribution very often, or uh, for people who like fancy Latin terms, it's called the lex talionis. Um, but the Bible presents it as being good, a good thing. Now, it's easy to hear this phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and to associate it with revenge. Uh, but properly, it was a law that was put in place to keep people from endlessly seeking revenge. It wasn't a law that was written for individuals. It wasn't written so that if you knock my tooth out, I can just go and knock your tooth out. Rather, it was lit written as a law for establishing standards in courts of law. The idea behind this ancient principle is that when courts are conducting things, they ought to make the punishment fit the crime that was committed. This was a mandate to the courts in the ancient world to not let things get out of hand. Um, however, though, if you read the laws of Hammurabi or the Middle Assyrian laws, there's a lot of arbitrariness. There's a lot of crazy punishments. There's a lot of crazy laws even. I mean, if you guys want a good laugh, read the Middle Assyrian laws or the Code of Hammurabi. Um, there's all sorts of things about, oh, you know, if this person does this, throw her into the water, and if she floats, then she's innocent, but if she sinks, like, that kind of ridiculous stuff. But um, I want to focus just for a second on one of those laws that uh, is is really very poor that is from the non-biblical code. This is from the Middle Assyrian laws. Uh, in those Middle Assyrian laws, if a man rapes a woman, the punishment for that man was that the father of the daughter that he raped gets to rape that man's daughter. Now, this is actually um, horrific, of course, uh, but this is 
very much an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You rape my daughter, I rape your daughter. Um, but of course the, the horrific thing about this is that the daughter of the man who committed the crime ends up being punished for something that her father did. So one innocent girl gets raped and then the courts end up proclaiming the, the, the punishment for it and another innocent girl gets raped as the product of the first crime that was committed. So even more terrible things perpetuate because of these sorts of laws, because of the way that they were actually enacting this idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is very screwed up, um, but as I said, it was, it's exactly what you would call an eye for an eye. But what's unique about the law of Moses uh, is that nobody is ever allowed to be punished for a crime that someone else committed. Uh, a father cannot die in the place of his son if the son is the one who committed the crime. A daughter can't be punished for something that her father did. If the father commits a crime, he's the one who is going to have a punishment that fits the crime. And then God takes that idea of an eye for an eye and says the punishment that that man receives for what he did should fit the crime. Uh, one of the things that it says in the, the scripture is uh, God speaks to the people and says that their laws are going to be so fair that all of the other nations look to those laws and say, wow, have we ever heard of anything being this fair? Have, God's presence must be among this people because their laws are so equitable. It's interesting that the laws of Moses are actually the first law in all of history that didn't differentiate between people in different classes. In the Middle Assyrian law, if a rich person does something to a poor person, it's a very small fine. But if a poor person does something to a rich person, that, you know, give them death. There is uh, no differentiation in God's laws between rich people and poor people, between slaves and free people. Everyone who commits a crime receives the same punishment if they've done it whether they're rich or poor. Um, God was commanding courts to not be too extreme in the verdicts that they were handing out, uh, to you know, hand out the death penalty for a very minor crime. He's also saying that the judges can't be too lenient in their uh, verdicts. They can't punish capital crimes like murder with just a little slap on the wrist or a small fine. The punishment has to be fair. Uh, the courts need to be fair for one specific reason. Because if the courts were fair in their punishment of crimes, individuals would not need to seek revenge. And if individuals don't need to seek revenge, there won't be 
over and over, I do this to you, and so you do this to me, back and forth, wars going, um, going on because of things that were done. The courts are the ones that ought to stop these things from happening. If we're left to ourselves, however, if there aren't these courts that are mandated to do what's right and to make the punishment fit the crime, what we end up doing on our own is if someone knocks out one of our tooths or one of our teeth, then we want to knock two of their teeth out because we think that's fair. We want revenge. We want them to feel what we felt. I know that I've spent a, a whole lot of time on just this one phrase and talking about the history of it. But it's really important to understand in this, uh, this context because it's the foundation of everything that Jesus is introducing. Uh, it's the anchor in this whole section as we're going to see. Jesus, in referencing this ancient law, is saying that he has something to say about how it's been used in the past. And then he follows that with examples to illustrate the point that he's trying to make. We saw in the Middle Assyrian laws that I recounted for you guys that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth can actually become oppressive when it becomes about revenge. Or it can be oppressive if it lacks a proper care for the innocent. Uh, but we also saw that it's possible to have this law principle be something that's very fair, at least in the abstract. God's law in the Old Testament, although it seems many times to us as modern readers compared to our modern laws uh, to be unfair, as I said before, when you compare God's law side by side with the codes of that day, it's laughable how ridiculous those other laws look in comparison to God's law yeah, that he reveals through Moses. So what is Jesus doing when he says, you have heard it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Is he condemning the Old Testament law? Is he saying that what Moses wrote was garbage? Well, the answer to that is no. We saw even in this video, but if we know the Sermon on the Mount, just a few verses before this, Jesus says, just so you guys know, I have not come to do away with the Old Testament law. I have not come to throw the prophets out. I have come to fulfill those things. Jesus tells us that he is actually all about God's law. And so he uh, is not throwing those things out. It seems like, though, when Jesus says an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth, and then later adds, don't or do not resist the one who is evil, that these things cannot be both true. It seems like Jesus is saying that the old law of the retribution is outdated, but the new thing, the new law, is to just not fight back against someone who's coming after you. Um, Jesus, and this is important, Jesus is not canceling that law 
of retribution. He's not telling us just to be, allow ourselves to be taken advantage of. And this is exactly why Jesus gives four examples to explain what he's talking about. Um, and we, if we don't read them all together, all four at, a, at the same time, uh, we could make some pretty big mistakes. Jesus is clearly implying that the people of God have never actually kept the intent of this law of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. What they've done is sought revenge, or they have allowed the courts to be corrupt, to be too extreme or too lax in the punishments that they're handing out. But now what he wants to do is to reveal that there is a higher law. And it's a law that we see throughout the Old Testament, so it's not like he's inventing something new. But what he's saying is that if we truly love one another, that that will cause us to lay down our own right, sorry, our own rights and freedoms for other people. You know, Jesus says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you for your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if, Jesus, and if anyone forces you to go to a mile, go two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This is radical. And it's an explanation of what believers' lives ought to look like. But it's important to see what's happening here. It's not just simply new commands. It's more than that. These four things that Jesus gives as examples basically cover all arenas of our lives. It covers our social lives. It covers our legal lives. It covers our political lives. And it covers our monetary lives. Jesus is saying that if we follow him, that being his followers, believing in him, is going to affect every single area of our lives and how we act and treat people in every single area of our lives. And so even though some of these statements are difficult things to understand, uh, difficult things to come to grips with, I think that we need to understand them in some sense as hyperbole. Now, in this very sermon, Jesus says that if our eye causes us to sin, what we should do is cut it out. He says that if our, our, our hand causes us to sin, cut it off. Now, we of course need to take what Jesus is saying seriously. Because what he's telling us is that sin needs to be resisted at all costs. But he's not telling us literally to cut our hands off or cut our eyes out. If that's what he meant and that's what he was tr truly saying, we would all be sitting here with no hands, no eyes, probably no tongue, and if we really wanted to go through the whole thing, we'd cut our brains out, too, because there's sins going on in here. 
Jesus is making a point by using a very extreme example. And Jesus is doing the same sort of thing here. And so we need to apply the spirit of what Jesus is saying to our lives and, rep and recognize that it's more than just, oh, what I have to do is some someone smacks me on the cheek, turn the other. But if someone lies about me on social media, man, just go after them. This is a principle that we need to take and apply to every area of our lives. So let's look at these things one at a time. It's also important, just a side note, to say that Jesus is not saying that there's never a time to defend ourselves. He's not saying that there's never a time that we should stand up for our rights or the rights of others or protecting our families. Absolutely there are times where we need to stand up for our rights. We need to stand up for the rights of those who can't uh, stand up for their rights themselves. So let's look at this first section. Uh, first, the follower of Jesus uh, in a social setting. Jesus says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. We need to recognize that Jesus here is not referring to abuse. Here, as much as he's referring to humiliation. Uh, the word that's being used here uh, is not used very often in Scripture, just a couple of times. But when it's used, it's emphasizing the humiliation of being slapped in front of other people. It's not really talking about the violence. And it says that you're slapped on your right cheek. And assuming that most people are right-handed, what this is referring to is a backhand in public. It's actually something that in Jesus' day was a, a crime, that you could receive a very hefty fine for doing it because it was deemed to be so embarrassing to slap someone on the face. Uh, okay. In, in other Jewish literature uh, from around the time, it's talked about being one of the most humiliating things that you could do to another person. So we need to recognize that this is not a, a, a command that Jesus is making to take abuse. Um, especially if we're talking about in a relationship. This is talking about someone, especially someone who's not your friend, who humiliates you in public. Um, now, this doesn't even mean that if someone does something wrong to you that they shouldn't be held accountable. But what it means is that we don't have to take things into our own hands. There's two laws here that this reminds me of that I think are applicable to this situation. Uh, in Paul's uh, letter to the Romans, he writes, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And then he goes on to say that what we need to do is leave room for the wrath of God to work in the lives of individuals. We don't need to seek revenge. Um, that what's that, what that's saying is that God himself can take care of these things. And this wicked person will eventually receive his or her just reward. The second thing is uh, something that Paul also writes in, uh, in Romans, that God has given power to civil authorities. And that power that he has given to the civil authorities is to punish 
those who do evil. If someone wrongs you, you ought to let God handle it. You ought to let the civil authorities handle it. More than anything, Jesus is telling us in this passage that we are to forgive, that we are not to seek revenge. So if this passage is not about letting ourselves be abused, then what is turning the other cheek all about? If someone is publicly embarrassing you, what's the natural reaction? You want to strike back. You want to embarrass them back. You want to say, well, you know, I have dirt about you too, so maybe I'll just reveal this to your friends. That natural reaction is exactly an eye-for-eye retaliation used as revenge. But again, as we said, that's not the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is to make courts make fair judgments. If you are publicly embarrassed by someone, or that person lies about you or wrongs you in some way, what does it look like to turn the other cheek? Well, what it looks like is not striking back when you have the opportunity. If someone's lying about you, turning the other cheek is not dragging that person through the mud. It doesn't mean that you don't eat, try to preserve your own good name. If people are saying lies about you, you can try to clear up those lies. But you don't do it in such a way that tries to make that person who's making you look bad look bad. And I just want to emphasize again here that turning the other cheek is not, a la is not letting your spouse beat you or verbally abuse you or emotionally abuse you. Um, that is not turning the other cheek to allow that to happen, and it's certainly not what Jesus is talking about. Um, if a real crime is committed, then courts ought to step in and do what's right, and God will also judge that person for his or her wickedness in this life or the next life, maybe both. Um, and so I just want to say, if this is happening to you, your pastor and your elders will help get you out. Um, they'll call the police for you, They'll come to your house. They'll get you out. Um, we don't talk about this enough publicly, but I know that abuse happens, and abuse happens in pretty high percentages, and there may be even people here who are in abusive relationships. I don't know any of you guys. Um, but this is what the church is for. Jesus is calling us to forgive and not seek revenge. And if your abusive spouse is doing these things for you, you can forgive that spouse you can forgive them as they're being driven off in the back of a police car and allowing the authorities to do what the authorities ought to do. This is not seeking revenge. If your children's life or your life are in danger, please uh, talk to one of your elders. Um, anyways, the real takeaway here uh, from turning, turning the other cheek is to be loving, forgiving, to not hold a grudge, and to not seek revenge. And uh, really actually hear this out when I say it. Turning the other cheek is about changing the power dynamics. It's not about being weak. I mean, think about it. If someone gives you an embarrassing slap in public or whatever it is, this is just the example that Jesus is using here. 
and you have the power to fight back. And what you do instead is invite them to balance their slaps out and say, hey, you missed this other cheek. What you're ending up doing is taking their power away. They've slapped you. They've done, they've done something to embarrass you. But if you're not embarrassed by it, and you say, hey, that's okay. Do you want to do that again? If trying to embarrass me in public is what you need to do, Okay. Um, instead of that slap taking your dignity away, you are strong enough to endure that embarrassment and to do things on your own terms. If they slap you again, it's going to be because you've allowed it and not because they're more powerful for you, more powerful than you. So if someone posts something mean about you on Facebook, don't you think that it would really change the power dynamic if you asked them to also post it on Twitter? Hey, I think that there are some people who aren't be, being reached with that ma nasty message about me. Why don't you get that out on YouTube and Twitter and everything else? Um, I think that it would change things. It, it wouldn't, I mean, wouldn't that take their power away? The, the thing that they were intending to do to you ends up not doing it. They end up failing in their attempt to embarrass you, to humiliate you, to be mean to you. And you're rising above the situation. Uh, secondly, Jesus uh, says that we ought to reflect his gospel and his life in the legal sen setting. Jesus says these words, If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. It was actually illegal, according to the book of Exodus, for a person to take a person's clothes away. Um, and so, if someone was doing that, suing you, they're doing something that the Bible calls wicked in trying to take your undergarment. Well, Jesus says, just let the person have it. Freely give to that person not only the tunic they're trying to take away, but also give them your cloak as well, which is a more expensive garment that went over your tunic. Just let them have it. Um, give the person who's suing you more than what they asked for. Now, this is, of course, not to encourage lawsuits. Um, but to express that the people of God are to, to think of their possessions differently than everyone else thinks of their possessions. This person who's suing you for your coat is doing something that's wrong. And again, the response for being wronged is not seeking revenge, is not striking back, but to be generous and loving. Um, I do think, again, this is hyperbole. This is not advice from LegalJesus.com. It's uh, not something that's binding in every situation. Jesus is not saying, well, if someone sues you to try to take your house away, also give them your life savings. Uh, it's important to recognize that these, uh, these things are small potatoes that Jesus is talking about. Someone takes your cloak away, you're going to spend more money 
in the courts trying to keep your cloak than it's going to take you to buy a new cloak. If what it takes to preserve the peace of this relationship, to, um, to do all those things, is just giving your cloak up, give up your cloak. Don't fight back in the court of law. Don't seek a cloak for a cloak. If they take your cloak away, I'm going to try to take their cloak away. Just let it, let it go. Um, you may have your legal rights to revenge in that situation if someone really does something that's wrong with you. But God says to do the opposite. Um, rather than allow a legal battle to ruin our attitudes or ruin our happiness, we're to simply forgive. Uh, the third thing that Jesus says is that his follower ought to be affected in the political setting. Jesus says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Uh, back then there was a, a law that a Roman soldier could force anyone who was standing there to carry his bags or his gear for one mile which a Roman mile was a little different than our mile. A Roman mile was a thousand steps, however long a thousand steps would turn out to be. So what Jesus is saying is, if someone makes you take a thousand steps carrying their, their gear, take 2,000 steps. Do twice as much, twice as many paces. Um, the people of Israel at this time resented the Roman occupation. And they resented the fact that they weren't their own rulers. They weren't their own sovereign nation. And so a soldier who forced you to carry his gear for a thousand paces was seen as an intruder, as seen as a violator of the first century Jewish person's rights. And so being forced to serve a soldier of your political oppressor would have been angering, it would have been embarrassing, and it would have been 100% legal for that soldier to do that. You had nothing legally to fall back on. You couldn't say, hey, this is unfair. Sorry, that's the law. So some soldiers, most likely, would have people carry their gear just to rub it in the faces of the lower class. I can make you do this. Well, think about the change in power dynamics that happens if the person that the soldier says, you have to walk a thousand paces with me, walks two thousand paces. For the first thousand paces, they're just doing what they're required and the soldier's probably thinking, yeah, I've forced them to do this. I have power over them. Yet, thousand and one paces and onward up to two thousand paces. Suddenly, this soldier realizes that uh, this has been willing service. I haven't forced this person to do this. They've volunteered. They've done this willingly. So forget about just no retribution for being wronged. This person is going above and beyond the call of duty, above the law, even though they're being oppressed. Doing this is not just allowing yourself to be oppressed. And again, notice that all of these things that Jesus is mentioning have been very small things that the Christian is having to deal with. 
We need to not allow small things to control us. All of these commandments go beyond what the basic law of retribution, which is an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, required. It's going beyond that. It's even beyond the basic laws of service. This is the law of love. The fourth thing that Jesus uh, says that uh, ought to happen is the follower of Jesus ought to be different in the monetary setting. And I know that probably all of us don't really like to hear about how we ought to use our money and spend our money, but hey, this is Jesus. This isn't me telling you how to use your money. Jesus says, give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, what he means is really very straightforward. Don't be selfish with your money, but think about the needs of others. If someone really has needs and you have the ability to change those, to help those needs, then you should do so. Now, of course, there is a circle of how important it is to do these things with the group. If someone in your immediate family is suffering, you have a duty to help take care of them if you can. If someone in your church community is suffering, doesn't have enough money to pay their bills, doesn't have enough money to eat, it's your duty, Christians who have enough money, to help take care of your brothers and sisters. Um, and then thirdly, in this concentric circle, other people in your community, fourthly, just people in the world, where there is a responsibility that we have to, to take care of all of the poor, even those who aren't in our uh, immediate circle. As followers of Christ, the way that we spend and think about our money ought to be different than the way that the typical person thinks about their money and spends their money. Many people think of giving to the poor or lending to those in need as being an in imposition, as being an inconvenience. Yet here is, uh, and yet here we are uh, told to bear the poor no ill will. If they need our money, we're not to be angry that we're giving them the money. We're not to withhold from them. We're not to have bitter feelings. We're not to have prideful feelings that say, well, you know, the reason I have money is I've just worked harder. That's not necessarily true. Sometimes people work very hard and get lots of bad breaks. This, too, is all about the law of love. We need to love one another. We need to love one another with our money, even. This is going beyond, though, the letter of the law that God has commanded in the Old Testament. Jesus is asking us for more. He says, yes, there is what the letter of the law says. But if you internalize what the law of God means, you have to recognize that you don't just have to follow these little parameters. And if you do all of these things exactly right, well, then you're off the hook. There are laws in the Old Testament that say, love your neighbor as yourself. There are laws in the Old Testament that say, if there is a foreigner or a stranger in your home area, you're to take care of them as if they're one of your family. What these four scenarios 
all have in common is what they do, they, they take what is normal and they turn it on its head. In each case, the believer does something that's unexpected. And even the opposite of what we would call the normal human reaction. And what this shows is that the kingdom that Jesus came to inaugurate is truly, as this video said, an upside-down kingdom. It's a kingdom that is not of this world. And Jesus is presented in this book as being the prophet that Moses foretold, but also as being the king that God's people had waited for. And so we need to recognize that Jesus' kingdom is not just another typical kingdom, but it is that upside-down kingdom where people don't need to take revenge. It's an upside-down kingdom meaning that is opposite of our normal everyday lives. We are commanded to have a different outlook on life. Well, here's where the rubber meets the road. Why? Why should we have a different outlook on life? Um, Why would we have a different outlook on life? Because Jesus said so, and for no other reason, right? Jesus is just saying, he gets up on the mountain and says, hey guys, from now on, think differently. What, or I could get up here and say, hey everyone, think differently, behave differently, that's my sermon, you're all dismissed. No, <laughs> this is obviously not what's going on here. We are told that we are to have a different outlook on life for a specific reason, and specifically for two main reasons. Number one, who Jesus is, and number two, what he's done. Uh, so here's number one, and I really honestly am bringing this thing in for a landing because I know I've probably already gone longer than what, <laughs> what I should have been doing, but... Uh, Jesus brings this whole section together with a phrase that he said a few times in this sermon. You have heard that it was said, dot, 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 but I say to you. Now, we need to recognize that this is a huge thing. If we're reading it quickly, we might breeze over it. But if you really imagine, put yourself in this scenario. I come here, you guys don't know who I am. And the first thing I do when I come up here is say, hey guys, the Bible says such and such, but I say to you, fill in the blank. Um, two things would be going on. Every one of you would probably be thinking, who does this guy think he is? And secondly, I would never be back as a guest preacher. Um, but Jesus is actually getting up and doing that very thing. Jesus is getting up in front of this crowd and says, this is what Scripture has said. This is what God has said in the past. But here's what I'm saying to you. It ought to make us raise our eyebrows and go, really? Who does this Jesus guy think that he is? Um, well, Jesus is actually saying that the things that God has said in the past, the things that Moses has said in the past, the things that other prophets have said in the past, are on par with what Jesus has to say. That Jesus speaking is as important as when God is speaking. 
Jesus is claiming no small thing. This is huge. Jesus is God come in the flesh, come to the world that he's created to redeem the lost people of the earth, to gather his lost sheep, as he says in one of his parables. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is clearly making these statements in preaching from a mountain, claiming that he has the same authority or more as Moses, saying, I'm saying to you, proclaiming new law. If you look even at what Moses and the prophets say, what they say is, thus says the Lord. Jesus gets up there and says, thus says me. Here's what I have to say to you, and you ought to accept those as the word of God. Jesus is claiming to be the son of God. And then number two, when Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount, he handed out the blessings. What I said in the beginning, he's, he is God. He's already made that claim to us. And so therefore, he has the power to hand out God's blessings that he's promised. And when Jesus hands out the blessings, he's changing the status of the poor and of the weak. If you already have the blessings of God, these small things like being embarrassed in public or having to lend some of your money, being sued for your cloak, being forced by a soldier to carry someone, they don't really mean much of anything. Jesus isn't telling us to simply stop feeling embarrassed and buck up. He begins by pronouncing that those who are poor in spirit, those who are teachable, those who don't have their own righteousness but want it, they want the righteousness of God and so on, they're blessed by God and they're going to be rewarded by God. So if we truly believe that those who are in Christ are blessed, then this is going to be our natural response to have a different outlook on life. I mean, like, let's think about it. Let's just use an everyday example. Imagine you just won the lottery and you got fired from your job in the same day. Is getting fired from your job going to be that devastating if you've just won $500 million or whatever? No. If you recognize that you have this blessings of God, the same thing is true here. We have the blessing of the God of the universe. Are we going to let a slap on the cheek phase us? Are we really going to let a nasty comment on Facebook ruin our day, ruin our week, ruin our lives? Will we really feel like we need to vindicate ourselves and our public reputation if the God of the universe beforehand has already announced that we are vindicated? So Jesus blesses the people of God, but that's not even the end of the story. You can watch the rest of the end of the story, The Bible Project, which you can find on thebibleproject.com or YouTube and see what happens uh, in the rest of the story of Matthew. But I'm just going to give you the cliff notes. Uh, the blessing that Jesus handed out and the promised salvation does not come cheap. It doesn't come cheap for Jesus, although it does come for free for us because Jesus has already paid the cost. 
Jesus is beaten and crucified and experiences, experiences the judgment of human courts, even though he was innocent. He also experiences the judgment of God because he takes on the sin of wicked people and dies in our place and is judged by God in our place so that we can be made right with God. When thrust into the circumstance where he's being tried on trumped-up charges, Jesus is slapped in the face. Jesus has all authority on heaven and on earth, or in heaven and on earth, and could have commanded legions of angels to come and stop that slap in midair. Jesus has the power to not be slapped and embarrassed in public, yet Jesus doesn't stop it. Jesus endures the public humiliation. Jesus doesn't just tell us, oh, turn the other cheek if someone slaps you. He actually does it. When Jesus is crucified, he is stripped of his garments. The courts take away his rights, and his garments are taken away. He's beaten, and he's crucified naked. Jesus not only preaches the law of love, like turning the other cheek, he actually does it. This commandment that is given to us is also fulfilled by Jesus in his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. And he actually, in that, pays for all of those times, promises, this is the last page, guys, all of the times that we don't do what is right. All of those times that we fail to turn the extra cheek. All those times that we fail to go the extra mile. Jesus has paid for those. And if we really understand what Jesus did for us, and what we're being saved from by what he's accomplished on our behalf, then we have a basis for being able to live in this way. To live a life that seems upside down to the normal order of things. We can only live that life in that upside-down kingdom because we have a great ruler of that upside-down kingdom who has already done what we could not do. He's already lived in this way the way that we fail to do perfectly, the, the way we maybe even fail to do well. Let's be honest. Maybe the way we fail to really even do it all. Jesus has already done it. Done it perfectly. Done it perfectly on our behalf. Living in this way is not the litmus test for those who are saved or not saved. We know this precisely because the order of things in this sermon. First we are blessed, and then we're told how we should live. So many people are under the impression that religion and even Christianity is about climbing a moral ladder, about self-improvement, about pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, but this is not the case. It's about recognizing that none of us is actually able to climb that moral ladder. And because none of us were able to climb that moral ladder, none of us could ever reach the standards of God. That ladder was something that Jesus came down. Because we would never get up it. Jesus came down from heaven because we could never go up to heaven. 
on our own. The blessings of God are not rewards for doing things that are right, but they're the consequence of God's free grace. Instead of needing us to climb up to heaven or climb up to righteousness, Jesus came down from heaven to do what we could not do. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die in our place and to accomplish our salvation, the salvation that we could not accomplish ourselves. We acknowledge as we're thinking about the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount that when we look at ourselves and we're honest, we are spiritually bankrupt. Even the purest among us has sinned. The purest among us is unable to save him or herself. We thank you for the truth of the words that Jesus spoke at the very beginning of this sermon when he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The whole human race is truly poor in spirit because we are all without the spiritual resources and ability to achieve salvation. Though many of us are unaware of this, many of us keep trying, trying to climb that moral ladder. Heavenly Father, please open our eyes to be able to see and acknowledge this, that we can't. We thank you that even though we had nothing to offer spiritually, that through Jesus and in Jesus we receive the kingdom of heaven because the king of heaven came down and was crucified for our sins. Help us trust you and believe that through Jesus we have been called and been blessed as your people. We ask that this truth would sink down into our hearts and sink down into our minds, that this would change our perspectives, that we would be able to live a life in which we could bring you glory a life in which we could exemplify your love and a life in which we could truly love even our enemies, love even those who are being mean to us, even those who are spreading lies about us, that we could forgive, that we could stop endlessly trying to seek revenge, to lay down our freedoms, lay down our rights, and no longer be trying to get an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth, but be willing to do what, what Jesus has done, to forgive others, even those who are wronging him. That even as he was crucified, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We ask that the mind of Christ would be in us through your Holy Spirit, that you would sanctify us, that you would cleanse us, that you would make us more like Jesus Christ, renew us in your image. We pray this all knowing that you will accomplish these things through your Spirit for those who are your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.